podcast. My name is Chris Fleming. I am the adult ministry coordinator for the discipleship ministry team of the Ministry Council of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, and I am back on track. So we have our lectionary uh, discussion on Sunday night. Uh, before we get into it, I did want to make sure everybody knew about the uh, new resource that we're offering uh, from the DMT for our churches. It's called the WeSource, and that is called a WeSource because it is a curriculum or a study for every single group in your church. Jody Rush has made a children's study for Lent. Nathan Wheeler has done youth and young adults. I've done the adult Bible study. And Eleanor Swindle Brown has done a personal study that you can follow each week during Lent. We have the first three lessons up, and we'll add the other lessons as we go. But they're ready to go. Check them out. If your church is looking to do a Lent study, we've got it there for you. We're also looking forward to doing those more and more uh, for different various uh, seasons of the church. And so... If you use that, look over it, and you want to make a comment on it and see how we can make it better, or if it was really good and you encourage us to do some more, you can email me at cfleming, that's C-F-L-E-M-I-N-G, at cumberland.org. You can find those resources on our Ministry Council website at cpcmc.org forward slash we sources. So that's W-E-S-O-U-R-C-E-S. So, again, that's cpcmc.org forward slash resources. All right, so this week's a little bit easier than last week. Uh, Number one, I wasn't so busy, but then number two, uh, the scriptures are a little bit easier. Uh, They're all good scriptures. This week, for the first Sunday in Lent, it's going to be Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 1 through 11. The psalm is Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2, and 9 through 16. The epistle passage is Romans chapter 10, verse 8 through 13. And then Luke chapter 4 is the gospel. It's verses 1 through 13. It's the classic Lent uh, gospel uh, reading. So, we'll get right into it. Uh, The unifying themes this week are, number one, that God protects God's people, and God protects the dignity of all people. In the Deuteronomy passage, uh, all people, whether Israelite or alien, are included in the celebration of God's goodness. Everybody. In the psalm and the epistle passage, everyone is invited to salvation and protection from God. Call on the name of the Lord. In the New Testament passage, Jesus is tempted with universal temptations. Every single one of us, regardless of class, race, gender, faith, whatever, will face these temptations that Christ faced. They're at the core of our humanity, and we see Christ overcomes them. The second unifying theme would be calling on the name of the Lord. Of course, in the Old Testament, you're calling on God for his goodness. In the psalm, you call on God for protection. In the epistle, you call on God for salvation. And in the gospel, you call on God for strength. Right. So those, those three points can be a sermon outline in and of itself. That one's free. Uh, and then the third unifying theme, and this seems obvious, but oftentimes the obvious escapes me. Uh, but the unifying theme would be dependence upon God. Everything that we do are and will ever be is because of God. Our strength and dependence must be in God. So that brings us then to the Deuteronomy passage. Love this passage. Uh, You can read it for yourself, but essentially before the Israelites go into the promised land, Moses gives them instructions on how they're going to to live. And he said, once you come to the promised land, you're going to get some of your first fruits. You're going to take it to the priest. You're going to set it before the altar, and then you're going to say these words. Today I declare to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. And then you'll also say, A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number, 
There he became great, a mighty nation and populous. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. The Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with terrifying displays of power and signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. And then you set it down, and then after you set it down, uh, everyone's partake, everyone is called to partake in a celebration. I love this text, that it's in the season of Lent. As often happens, this text is an illustration of the importance of corporate and spiritual memory in the congregation, and it also is an example of, of a work of corporate theology. The story of Christianity is a long story, and it's part of a larger journey that started with a wandering Aramean, and actually it probably started before that in the sense that it started with Adam and Eve. Too often in our churches, we shortcut the story of God's people and we go straight to our own worship experiences. And because of how some of our churches worship, the types of worship, there's a danger to be a disconnect between the saints of all times and all places at worship and ourselves, you know, being the core of, of our existence, ourselves being fed. The problem with that is, is that it shortcuts the work of God over the last 5,000 years or so. And it makes our personal faith and preferences more important. Maybe it makes our personal faith more authoritative than what has gone before us. We can see this in our music, in our liturgy, or lack thereof, in our Bible studies. I don't know how many times I've heard the phrase, what does this mean to you? Which is acceptable when it's placed beside thus saith the Lord and history, right? So God interprets us and allows um, for personal meaning to be made in fellowship with other saints. Remember that. Christianity is connectional because theology and worship is always done corporately among our contemporaries, but also with the saints of old because it was their story as well. They're our foundation. It's interesting to see the prophet Moses telling people what to say to God. So essentially, God is telling people how to worship God. God didn't simply ask for a moment of personal testimony. But God was defining to the people how they were supposed to understand God's blessings and benefit. God was teaching them their identity in that story of redemption. So worship is meant to teach God's children in the ways of God. It's meant to form a corporate memory of how God deals with God's people and to transform worshipers from sense of self into the corporate story of God's redemption. God is teaching in worship. God is forming in worship. One note to make here is that the Israelites had not yet entered the promised land when this instruction was given. I think that's neat because it illustrates the, you've probably heard this phrase, the already but not yet nature of our faith. The Israelites knew they were journeying to the promised land. They had already seen signs and wonders. They had already benefited from being delivered from slavery, but they had not yet tasted the promised land. So what I'm trying to say is worship is not solely the recognition of what we've been given, but it's also instruction on how we celebrate and live in light of the ultimate promise of a restored creation, the final promised land, if you will. Worship is a practice for things to come, not just what's happened here right now or in the past. And finally, I think this is important. As far as it depends on us, through, uh, through worship, our society is transformed. We have no political power on the left or the right, nor should we. Our power is derived from obedience and worship. The worship of God breaks down borders and barriers. And I need to say this well. We don't break down barriers or borders. 
Government set up national laws. We don't. Our weapons are not of flesh and blood. If you remember this, your life will be much happier and your ministry much more successful. It is the business of the church to make worshipers, and it's the business of God to transform society through worship and those worshipers. Now, that being said, when Christians are convicted of wrongs in our society, we speak. We work with integrity to change the system, but the power comes from our worship. The ultimate power comes from God. It was not political activism that brought down the system of slavery in Egypt. Instead, it was the crying out to God of God's people and and the what at first seemed like half-hearted obedience of, of Moses, which God brought around, brought about that change. Um, I wanted to say all this because in the last two verses of the scripture passage, I, th- I think it's phenomenal. So verse 26, 10, and 11. So now I bring the first fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me, and you shall set it before the Lord your God and bow down before the Lord your God. Then together with the Levites and the aliens who reside among you shall celebrate with all the bounty the Lord your God has given to you and to your house. All right, so true worship uh, has always began with a recognition of our need, that we're poor wayfaring strangers just as our ancestors were wayfaring strangers. But God intervened and blessed, and in response they brought offering, and in that offering they celebrated with everyone, whether they were part of the club or not. As we're aliens in this world... We celebrate with the aliens among us because of what God has done for us, including and including us in, in God's story. We invite others to be part of that celebration. And notice this, the alien is not commanded to bring an offering. It's only the common Israelites that bring an offering, not the Levites or the aliens. Instead, it's the common folk that bring their blessing, and then everyone is invited to partake in the celebration, whether you contributed it or not. And this is a picture that when God's people worship and obey, God never runs out of provision for everyone. This gives us the ability to celebrate with all people because we don't have to fear. God's not going to run out of love. God's not going to run out of provision for us. There's room for all and provision for all uh, to worship and love and to be loved by God. So, a way to preach this text is this. First, God has gifted us. You can crouch this in terms of salvation or an everyday blessing, but... I would like to see you ground it in the story of redemption from the Israelites onto us, highlighting our connection with those saints of old. Second, there should be a response of thanksgiving. You can define what a you can define what a proper thanksgiving is for the uh, for the moment. It could be an offering of money, of time for volunteering. Maybe during this time of Lent, the offering is giving something up that muddles your pursuit of God. But here's the thing. It needs to be something tangible, something you can see, something that you deeply experience, not just a sacrifice of of praise of your lips. I don't negate that, but there's something about seeing and feeling the giving of an offering to God. I remember when I was a kid transitioning to adulthood, I remember going to McDonald's and not eating as much because my parents were no longer paying for it. I was. I had to think about it in different ways. Before, I just piled stuff on because my dad, you know, paid for it. So, would you like five extra shrimp for $1.99? Sure, I'll take that. Or, would you like to supersize that meal for just a dollar more? Absolutely. When it became something I was responsible for, and it was tangible coming from my wallet to somebody else's hands, it changed the way I thought. Third, along with your offering, tie it directly to a work or blessing of God. If you can, tie it with the history of your own church or maybe the history of your family. So what I'm saying is, when you offer something, name why you're offering it. 
One of my pet subjects to study is psychology, and I've read enough to know that when you deal with generalities, you don't get very far in therapy or in emotional development or maturation. We humans are concrete people, and we use generalities most of the time just to pass over issues in our lives. And instead of saying, yes, I'm a sinner, uh, we name the sin, if you will. Or if you say, I just want to be happy, instead name what you mean by being happy. We really have to name specifics and then get specific if we want to grow as people or as worshipers. The old hymn says, count your blessings, name them one by one, and you will be surprised what the Lord has done. That's really truth. Be specific. Tie your offering to something specific that has been made manifest in your life. If you want to, if you're preaching this, maybe you go off script and ask members of your congregation to share briefly a blessing that has been manifested in their life. For example, I'll give you a quick example in my life. I was 32 years old before I got married, and I never thought I would get married. I'd always kind of put that part of my life on hold because I had school or I had church work, and I, I was helping out other people. And, and I remember one night saying, okay, God, this is enough. I've, I've, I've put this on hold enough. I would really like a family. Well, God worked. Now I have three children. They're not children from my own body, but through marriage I have two stepchildren, and then we also took in a child whose mother uh, passed away. But here's the cool part of all this, and this is where I'm going to get very specific and talk about the blessing and goodness of God. The kid we took in, definitely my son, love him to death, he attended his first years of college at the college that I went to. And the college I went to was a small college, and it you know has generation after generation of kids who attend. It's kind of like a legacy college, a legacy alum. So the neat thing that I gave up a lot of my time to pursue what God wanted me to do, but I was also the first person that graduated in my class that had a kid go to that college. I remember the scripture in the Gospels, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And I thank God every day specifically for my family because even eight years ago, I never would have saw that coming. Uh, they are a specific blessing in my life in specific ways and, and, and God is good. And then fourth, when you bring your offering to God, God now tells us to turn our offerings into a celebration with everyone. There's no barriers when it comes to celebration. We're not to celebrate uh, abilities or nationalities or denominational traditions or races or anything like that. When we realize that God has blessed us, it causes a great need for praise and celebration, an unadulterated forgetting of ourselves, praise and celebration to Almighty God, which is never constricted to our preferences. All right, so that brings us to the psalm, Psalm 91, verses 1 through 2, and then 9 to 16. Again, a psalm can be difficult to preach because, uh, I've said it plenty of times, it does not lend itself to exegetical preaching, and nor should it. I very seriously doubt that any of you have ever uh, dissected a love letter from your spouse or your family or, or a loved one. Um, now, this text, you can get somewhat exegetical in that this is the passage which Christ used against uh, Satan in his time of temptation. So that's an option, but I think you might be missing the integrity of the passage if you do so. So if you preach this text, uh, here's, here's an outline for you. Number one, what does it mean to live in the shelter of the Most High and the shadow of the Almighty? And this may sound stupid, but honestly, I don't think it is. I genuinely think people need to know what it means and what it looks like to live in the shelter of the Most High. We live in a culture that thinks that doing things define who we are. If our schedules are not overfilled with activities, then we think we're not doing something right. Our monthly budgets oftentimes exceed our pay. We create anxieties in this hustle and bustle world. So what's the alternative? What does it look like 
to live in the shelter of the Most High in the shadow of the Almighty? That's something you can explore. Number two, in answering that question, the psalmist points out that there is a supernatural world at work that we often do not see. One of the verses I've struggled with most in my life comes from Psalm 46. It says, Be still and know that I am God. And I'm telling you, this is difficult because if I'm still, who's going to run the world? Isn't it going to collapse because I'm not being busy? So you could speak of God's providence and protection from the scripture, how the angels will make sure that we don't, uh, we don't get hurt. Our job is to be faithful to what God has revealed and to fall deeply in love with God, right? That's our first and, and major concern. In return, God directs our path and providentially cares for us. I think that's what it means when Christ says, Seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. Then all these things shall be added unto you. Or when Christ speaks of the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, simply meaning God does provide and cares for God's children. And then third, and when we don't understand, right? So when we're living life and we're trying to do everything right, but we're getting crushed and anxiety is overrunning our emotions, the psalmist says, call out to God. What does that look like? Are there any illustrations you can give us that when we get overwhelmed and lose hope, call on God in prayer? He knows our every care. Have a little talk with Jesus. Again, I think what we do in the psalm passage is simply illustrate what these things mean. What does it mean uh, that there's a supernatural world at work? What does it mean that we're living in the shadow of the Almighty? What does it mean to call out in God, to God? All right, next, the epistle lesson, uh, Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. Uh, this sets up for a classic Cumberland Presbyterian sermon. Don't, shouldn't have to do much with this one. This is a whosoever will evangel evangelistic sermon. Uh, you can use this uh, time to talk about soteriology. You can talk about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can offer salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. You can answer the ultimate question, what must I do to be saved? You can take this time to talk about Jesus being great to all people and welcoming of all people. You can talk about justification. Now, one thing I've been more and more convinced of uh, about salvation and that it's more than redemption from hell but instead it's the beginning of a new created order in your life so i've been doing a lot of study on eastern orthodox christianity i'm not converting to it but i do think they have something good to say about salvation i think they have a more full understanding of salvation than to simply get on a hell free card that we offer so i offer you to think about this this week there's an element of substitutionary atonement in eastern orthodox that's our general view as protestant christians uh, they believe that Without the death, burial, and resurrection, there can be no life. There's no connection to God. But their understanding of salvation is that in the resurrection of Christ, we enter life. We, are, we were in a state of death. Christ conquered death. And in Christ, God begins to recreate not only our lives, but the world in general. In other words, they see becoming one with Christ as an invitation to a life of flowing water that never dries up. So the difference is that the focus is on recreation, not the punishment. So... Do with that what you will. If you want to tie that in with the gospel passage, here's what it would look like. Christ was tempted by Satan, and those not redeemed by God are facing the same temptation. They might settle for bread that doesn't last. They might settle for earthly fame. They might settle for power. But this would be death if we settled for those things. But those who are redeemed by God seek for true life, true blessings, not being tempted by the things of this world. Redemption then would mean life abundant. It would, mean, it would mean receiving by faith those things that no eye has seen, ear heard, or entered the thoughts of humans, the glorious things which God has prepared for us.
Uh, now the gospel passage. I'm going to recap uh, the commentary that I prepared for our uh, We Source Lent resource. Uh, so this is kind of a preview to what uh, our Bible study is like there. So if you would like, remember to go to cpcmc.org forward slash resources. You can find this first lesson uh, from that I write about there at the Adult Bible Study uh, tab. There's also, if you didn't go back and listen to it, there's an Introduction to Lent podcast. It's the last one I've put out, and if you want to explore that a little bit more, uh, please do so. But Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, this is the passage where Christ is tempted by Satan. He's gone out into the wilderness, he's fasted, he hadn't drank anything. And the temptations are, the way I understand it, uh, is either from N.T. Wright or Henri Nouwen. But I remember long ago studying up on these guys, and I thought, they have this right. And so this has been my understanding of the passage for about 16 years. And I haven't heard anything I believe is any better. And so I offer what I've learned to you. Uh, this is a perfect passage for Lent. It's the classic passage. So if you use the narrative, this temptation narrative of Jesus, and you reflect on your life as a disciple of Christ, I think we can think about Lent in a deeper way. I think what Satan was trying to tempt Christ with was food, which is a buzzword for security. The second thing was fame, and the third thing was power. So those are what I think, food slash security, fame, and power. So the first temptation is food, which again, I've called security. Jesus went 40 days with no food or water. So fasting is a key discipline associated with Lent for this very reason. Jesus was hungry for sure, maybe to the point of death. And Satan comes to Jesus at his lowest moment and says, turn those stones into bread. And Satan was tempting Jesus to become his own sufficiency with no dependence on God. Remember, having food was security for the people of Jesus' day. It's not a coincidence that part of the Lord's prayer is to ask for daily bread because not everyone was able to eat each day. Food simply meant security. Another wilderness wandering you may know about from Scripture is the Exodus. During the Exodus, the Israelites began to cry out to God. God delivered them from their troubles. They became complacent. God withdrew his provisions. They cried out for grace. Again, God helped. They became complacent, so on. Whenever they believed they could live in their own strength, they did. They created for themselves a life filled with material security, but soon found themselves empty and in great need. We don't have to live life this way. Jesus calls us into a life with much more meaning and purpose. Instead of food, security is found in the will of God, not in our earthly possessions. This principle is illustrated uh, when Jesus calls the first disciples. Our scripture says that he went to uh, the first disciples and said, I'll make you fishers of men, humans, or come follow me. And two different times in the Mark text, it says immediately they got up and followed Christ. Immediately they followed Christ. And so they were able to understand that you don't live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So that leads us to the second temptation, which is the temptation to fame. All right, so Satan takes Jesus up to the holy city and places him on the pinnacle of the temple. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. God will save you. What is not in the text is that this event would cause quite a stir. All right, so if Jesus is sitting on top of the temple, you've seen it on YouTube or in movies. If somebody's about to throw themselves off a building, everybody comes and watch and pulls out their cell phone. If he was up there, everybody would come and see. So why not shortcut the cross? Have people believe because God rescued Jesus in the sight of everyone. Jesus' fame would spread, and he could sit on the throne without the agony of the cross. What about fame, popularity, and recognition? 
Anybody in the church you know ever got up in the need to be known or feel important? How often do some, maybe many, in the church think that to be seen is more important than to do the ministry? I've personally experienced the frustration of people in the church when importance and fame is more important than the people we're called to serve. Uh, Like questions like, don't you think those kids could eat at home? We wouldn't have to buy so many donuts. Or, preacher, I don't think we have the resources to do a homeless ministry. Which what this means is is that we don't want to get involved in that type of ministry. That would dirty up the church. That's what that means. This attitude of the scribes and Pharisees, this was the attitude of the scribes and Pharisees when they saw Jesus associating with tax collectors and sinners. He was demeaning their faith by doing ministries to those who need it most. Being an elder or preacher comes with some fanfare, right? Washing clothes for the homeless or ministering to drug addicts takes a lot of work, and many times people would rather ignore the problems. Our church is sometimes scared to have certain types of ministries or people in their church. They want their church to stay clean. They want the church to have the best of everything, the best preaching, the best music, the best youth ministry. The church will use its resources to project a certain image, but sometimes the church doesn't want to do the dirty work of ministry. But remember, no cross, no salvation. Fame is not as important as following the will of God. And then the final temptation is the temptation to power. This could be about the shortcoming. This could be about shortcutting the cross as well. But I think this temptation is about settling for less than God offers. The offer from Satan was to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. If Jesus would only bow down to Satan. But Christ had set his mind to serving and worshiping God alone. So in staying faithful to God, Jesus not only became the ruler of the earth, but he is the king of kings, he's the lord of lords over all the universe, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. C.S. Lewis wrote in his collection of essays, The Weight of Glory, a very profound illustration. He writes this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are like ignorant children who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. How often we strive for the less important things, thinking that they are important. I think of the scribes and the Pharisees mistaking earthly power and influence for spiritual gain. Seeing a person healed is much greater than sitting at a place of honor in a banquet. But our culture has saturated our minds with the thought that to be able to have anything you want whenever you want it is power. Not so in the kingdom of God. Power in the kingdom of God is giving up self so that God can raise you up to all the purposes God has planned for your life. And in Christ, we see this alternative way of living. And I believe that's the beginning of salvation. It's not just eternal security from hell, but Christ offers a way of life lived before God, participating in the transformation and the recreating of the world. All right, thanks for listening. We went a little long today, but uh, let me pray. Uh, Gracious God, help us as uh, ministers and educators and and disciples uh, to think deeply in our Lenten journey coming up. Help us to not be general, to look in our hearts, to name specifically those things which cause us to stumble in our walk with you. Help us, Lord, to look deep in our hearts and to see our lack of holiness but also our lack of love. It's a daily struggle that we have, and we pray deeply that you can transform us into people who are both holy and loving and live a life that is pleasing and acceptable to you. Give power to the words of our our preachers and educators. 
Give them clarity of thought and mind as they study and prepare this week. It's in Christ's name we do pray these things. Amen. <laughs>